What's up, folks? It's me. It's me. It is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega coming to you with what I believe is episode 81 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. If, if for some strange, odd reason, you are encountering this podcast in a vacuum. If you are not one of the tens of ones already familiar with the content herein, I will very quickly tell you the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast is a podcast in which I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, plumb the depths of my very ordinary, average soul and mine it for content that I can share with you the listening audience, giving you thoughts, recollections, takes, and so on that you never knew you wanted and don't actually need. But here we are all the same. Folks, I was off the air last week, and I'm trying to recall why that was. Um, oh, I believe it was simply the trials and tribulations of settling in to the summer schedule here at Sensational Manor. 2.5, the home in which I live. Um, it may seem a little late in the game to be settling into a summer schedule, but our children here in Napa, California, their school year ends a bit later than some other school districts in the region that I know of. Um, we have a three-week winter break, so it extends the school year for another week. And then... Um, in addition to kind of a later than some folks I know's summer start, we had the whole experience of being taken out of the mix for about a week and a half with the COVID-19 virus. Um, so I'm just now wrapping my head around our summer schedule. And our summer schedule is kind of odd because my youngest child, Miss Sensational 2, 13, about to turn 14, she's... Um, attending a summer school sort of deal. So I got to drop her off at eight in the morning and pick her up at one. Meanwhile, my older daughter, Miss Sensational One, who's 17, she has her first job working at a local resort. And she's been getting scheduled these uh, 12 to 8.30 shifts, um, which we have to drop her off and pick her up from because she is not driving on her own yet. Um, and so that's coming kind of weird because it's, I, I now have this, this, uh, 8 30 PM curfew instated on me most days because I have to be able and ready to pick her up at that time, but that's fine. It's all old hat at this point, but last week, um, time was just getting away from me and I ran out of time to record an episode, but I am back here with very special episode 81 this week, um, even coming to you off the heels of a wild and crazy long 4th of July weekend that I have not fully recovered from, I'm still, I feel, I felt that since I was absent last week, I had to be back this week. And so here we are. And without further ado, let's get down to brass tacks. Um, I did want to say, in regards to school schedules, I've thought about this because I was just talking about how we have a three-week uh, winter break. Some schools have a two-week winter break. Our summer starts later than some other schools, blah, 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 this, that, and the third. Uh, I saw the saddest thing recently. I saw it because, um, actually because I see robots and then a few other people that I know not associated with uh, our podcasting network 
Um, they had all commented on a um, Facebook post from the newspaper based out of the town that I used to live in, the town that IC Robots still lives in, San Rosa, California. The, the uh, newspaper there is called the Press Democrat. Um, for those of you mutants listening, don't get uh, bent out of shape. It's not that kind of Democrat. Um, they're just called the Press Democrat. But yes, they had posted an article to their Facebook feed about the fact that here in the state of California, starting with this next school year, uh, schools cannot start before the time of 8.30 a.m. So, for instance, last school year and the several before that, my children both started school um, around 8 a.m. I it's, I should remember this because the school year just ended a few weeks ago, but now I can't remember. I, I think Ms. 1 started at 8, and Ms. 2 started at 8.15 or something like that. And they were at two different schools, and I had to scramble around to get them to both of them. Thankfully, next year, they're both going to be at the same school. So one, one drop-off. And we get to go there a half an hour later. So that means a half hour more of uh, prep time, a half hour more of sleeping in the morning. So I was thinking, great, this is this is such a godsend. I'm so the the difference for me between waking up at let's say six forty five to have to get ready to take people to school and seven fifteen for me that's huge. For me that is life changing. So I just presumed that this later school start time. I presumed it was a net, po- a net positive, that most people would think of it positively. And that's on a sheerly selfish level as a parent um, providing transportation. Um, that's not even looking into the fact of why this change was made. And it has to do with research based on kids and teens, neurological development, and uh, how extra sleep is helpful, and this, that, and the third. Um, but I should have kept in mind two things. I sh- should have kept in mind a that this is a change being made to something, a change being made to something in the public realm. And two, it's a change to something being made in the public realm couched in terms of being a developmental or health benefit. So I should have realized that this would be whipping both the mutants and the troglodytes into a frenzy, into an uproar, uh, I should have I should have looked out my window and I should have started yelling, the mutants are coming! The mutants! They're coming from the hills! Because they are. They, they are here. They are all around us. And th- this is what uh, Icy Robots and some other folks I know were responding to in uh, the thread about this article on the Press Democrat Facebook page. They were responding to the hordes of mutants and troglodytes who were just up in arms that this change was being made. How dare, how dare the government tell us what to do? Tell us what time school starts. Hello, folks, we're talking about public schools administered literally by the state. Therefore, every single aspect of how these schools run are dictated by the quote-unquote government. It's called having a social institution. If you don't like it, you are free to have a cult homeschool. You are free to take your children out of school entirely, send them to some mutant training camp. I don't know. I don't care. Just use an 
ounce, an ounce of logic and critical reasoning to come to the understanding that states make changes in how schools are run because it is a state school. It is a public institution. But that part was fairly commonplace. I I should have expected that because I I realize we live in this failing nation where uh, there's this cartoon mythology that um, anything public, anything institutional is inherently bad. The only things that are good are just um, for-profit enterprises. Not that there's anything wrong with for-profit enterprises, but um, the only things that are good are... But even the mutants don't even like for-profit enterprises anymore. Now they're against everything. The, the businesses they have a fit about because they they're trying to make money. They wanted to make money. They wanted to take my money. It's like of course they do. Then they're the public institutions. Oh, they're trying to tell me what to do. They're trying to tell me what. To, of course they are. It's 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 baffling. It is is mind boggling. We live in a complex postmodern society full of all kinds of institutions, rules, regulations, laws, governance, and you could fantasize that this would all go away. But were it to all go away tomorrow, it would be replace it would replace itself. It's the nature of postmodern life. It is the nature of systems theory where you are an individual cog living inside of a complex system that by nature of its complexity will create rules, laws, regulations. I, I think the best example of this I can give is um, some years ago, there was that mutant movement that you may remember, the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, not that I'm uh, trying to defend Wall Street per se, but I, it, was a, it was a mutant movement in my opinion. It was not attempting to achieve anything realistic. It was not attempting to, to uh, affect any kind of meaningful institutional change. It was just there to burn it all down, man, and and create this fantasy world of mutant anarchism. Um, And again, this this seems to be the aim of most mutant movements, whether it's right mutant, left mutant. They're just, they're individuals who are against everything and for nothing. So in any case, when this particular mutant movement was happening... In Santa Rosa, California, where I lived at the time, the Occupy Mutants occupied the Santa Rosa City Hall. For some reason, they saw a connection between the City Hall in Santa Rosa and these national and international issues that they had grievances over. So they created this sort of tent city in the lawn of the City Hall. And a writer for the aforementioned Press Democrat newspaper wrote this great piece where he observed the mutants and he noticed that the first thing to happen, to start occurring once they created their little tent city, was that their own version of governance and regulation began to form. One of the first things the writer noted that took place once the tent city was in effect was that they essentially created their own sanitation department. Because you have a group of people living in close quarters and you have garbage and waste beginning to pile up. And the only way to effectively combat this garbage and waste is to have some sort of regulated system for disposing of said waste. So lo and behold, mere days into this exercise in anarchy, 
laws, customs, regulations, systems are already beginning to develop. So can we please, please cease this useless fantasy? But anyway, that wasn't the worst part of this mutant uh, outcry about the later school time. The worst part is that the school change is literally being done in the service of brain development, in the service of childhood health and well-being for all children. You know, I'm, I'm someone, I, I come from a relative place of privilege. I can, at, at any time, do whatever it takes, do whatever I need to ensure the well-being, the healthy development of my kids. But not everyone is in that position. But everyone attending public school should have access to that same ability to ensure healthy development in their child. That's sort of the entire point of having public school. But this, more so than the knee-jerk reaction to systemic rules being announced or changed, this was the main thing that the mutants seemed to be worked up about, that anyone would be doing anything positively to affect change when it comes to childhood development. Because it seems to be a very bizarre quirk of right mutantism, where there's this fetishization and romanticization of suffering. Like, we would never dare to live in a world where things are easier for people. No, no, no. Everything has to be as hard as possible. Everything has to be mortal combat at all times. One versus one versus one, the whole world at war with each other. These people are very um, obsessed with this kind of imagery. And so therefore, an institution designed to improve the lives of children as they grow into adults, by very nature, these people should be against this institution in its entirety. But then, of course, they also gnash their teeth and rent their hair whenever this institution does anything to actually promote healthy child development. In any case, I've ranted on this way longer than I intended to. The the nutshell here is just I found it incredibly sad that something as innocuous as a uh, half hour later school start time was um, a focal point for a mutant attack, an enraged mutant frenzy. But I should keep in mind that these people will never be happy until we live in that proverbial Mad Max, Fury Road-style fascist state where some great paternal figure is our overlord and we are free to suffer and uh, exalt him um, as the uncaring, abusive father we wished we had. Or we did have and we're trying to replicate. I think that's their, that's their issue. <laughs> anyway, on... To other subjects, um, I am going to begin a tale this week that may conclude in this episode, but will actually likely end on a cliffhanger and continue over into next week. I'm going to tell you the tale this week of the frog with the flute. And I hope to God I have not told this story on the podcast before. I don't remember doing so. I think I've been holding this one in my back pocket. But it is a tale of intrigue. It is a tale of mayhem. It is a tale of criminality and depravity. So 
listeners beware. Um, it's still going to be family friendly or at least PG, but it is going to uh, entail um, illegal acts. Nothing too serious. Uh, teenage, teenage hooliganism and vandalism. So just be prepared. Strap yourself in. Sit back and enjoy this tale of yesteryear. The year was, I believe, ooh, it would have to be probably 1993. I want to say 1993. I could be wrong. Any factoid Marys out there that would like to correct the timestamp, feel free to do so on Twitter, at SensationalVega. But we will say for the purposes of this tale, it was 93. Mr. Sensational Gino Vega was 16 years old. And alongside uh, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, this tale features a handful of other protagonists. And I know some people get squirrely about tales in the past being retold, so we're, we're going to keep it very casual. We're going to keep it very anonymous here. We're going to refer to people by a first letter that may or may not, may or may not be one of their initials. So at 16, yours truly, Mr. Sensational, was attending... Montgomery High School in Santa Rosa, California. I was a junior that year. And although I was 16, and although back in the 90s that was a common age for individuals to begin driving automobiles, getting driver's licenses, Mr. Sensational was a slow, was a late bloomer when it came to the automotive world. Um, So I did not have my license yet when I was 16. I would not actually get my license until get this. I was about 30 years old, but that's another story for another time. So I didn't have a license. I would walk to school and walk home, and it was about a half-hour walk, I would say, each way. Um, But one of my best friends, who we will call Jay, Jay got his driver's license. Jay was the first one of my immediate high school friends to get his driver's license. And with that license, Jay was able to begin driving his mother's Buick. She had an old Buick that she handed over to Jay when he got his license. And I can't remember the year, you know, the model or anything like that. But it was this old, frumpy, silver Buick with like an interior maroon lining. And Jay began driving us. He wouldn't necessarily drive me to school. I think I would walk to school, but... He began giving different members of our friend group a ride home after school. Now, the ride home crew, the core crew, was Jay the driver, myself, and then M, a friend of ours. Jay and I were in the same grade, same age. M was a grade under us, and he was 15. And we would have various other people kind of join the Borg, as it were, from time to time. But it was always the three of us, sometimes with other individuals. Now, to get to M's house, we would drive through an area of Santa Rosa that at the time was sort of the happening dwelling area for, um, I don't know how you would describe it. Rich isn't the right word, but affluent individuals. It was a, the, these hillside housing developments, these sort of 1980s McMansion homes um, where kids whose dads were like doctors, lawyers, the stereotypical 80s affluent jobs, 
you know, engineers, business guys, uh, they would all live up here in these hills. And M did not live there, but we would pass, we would kind of skirt around that area, or you could pass through it to get to the area where M lived. So as a group of 16 and 15-year-old ne'er-do-wells who came from more modest means, we always found uh, these housing areas in the hills to be somewhat comical. We would make fun of them as we drove through. And most of the kids that we knew that lived in those houses, with some notable exceptions, but many of them were just kind of obnoxious blowhards from obnoxious blowhard stock. Which is, and, and these houses weren't even like, um, they were big, boxy, expensive houses, but just really tasteless, um, not reflecting any kind of imagination or aesthetic sense. Uh, they, they just were, the value of them is that they were big. Um, so initially, when we started driving by and through these neighborhoods, um, it was more incidental, but as time passed, we would go out of our way to drive through these neighborhoods and make fun of the homes. We would roll down the windows and loudly guffaw and just make an obnoxious spectacle of ourselves. Um, and we began to give different houses nicknames, such as the office building with nothing to denote itself as a residence except for a basketball hoop on the front garage door. That was a house that literally looked like a, like a medical office building, but then it had a random basketball hoop out front. Uh, we had the Hacienda. The Hacienda was an ostentatious home uh, attempting to go for a Spanish villa type look. Um, looked like maybe something from the movie El Mariachi, but not really. It looked like, you know, it looked like what, what a... 1980s stockbroker in the suburbs idea of a Mexican hacienda would be, if that makes any sense. Very, very cheesy, very tasteless. But there's the hacienda. Um, there was the pink monstrosity. That was this large, sprawling pink affair. So very suddenly and organically, this ritualized behavior began to develop, of going through the neighborhood, of making fun of the houses, of causing a spectacle, and the spectacle would start to manifest itself in different ways. We would do such funny, funny pranks as, um, at the time, there was a kind of iced coffee you could buy called Caffino, I believe it was. Caffino. Um, and Caffino came in this brown bottle that looked somewhat like a 40-ounce beer bottle. So we would drink caffeino, but it looked like we were drinking alcohol while driving, and then we would begin swerving back and forth on the street, like as people were walking by. I don't mean like swerving dangerously to hit them, but to make it look like these wild teens were just brazenly drinking and driving uh, while driving down this residential street. Hilarious acts like that. Um, there was one moment uh, that I have told this story on the podcast before, I'm pretty sure. If not, I told the story on Facebook. The three of us, Jay driving, me riding shotgun, and M in the back seat of the Buick, were driving past an elementary school that was in that neighborhood, and there was a kid standing out in front of the elementary school, and as we drove by in the Buick, he flipped us off. Jay immediately put on a pair of reflective aviators he had on in the car, screeched to a halt, threw the car in reverse rolled down the window, and asked the young man what his problem was. Keep in mind, Jay is a very tall 
individual. So this kid, seeing this incredibly tall guy in mirrored shades, screech to a halt and hit in reverse and then be like, what's your problem? And the kid insisted that he had not been flipping us off. Oh, no, no, no. He had been pointing at the sky. And I I love that story because I hearken to it oftentimes um, in the era of uh, Mr. Trump and um, in right mutantism in general. um, They can never, part of their gimmick is they can't, you know, they'll they'll quote Adolf Hitler and then, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Or they'll, they'll, someone recently with the Supreme Court uh, Roe versus Wade stuff talked about how it was a victory for white life. And oh no, but that, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. So you're always pointing at the sky. You're never actually doing what you were doing. You were doing something else because you get the effect out of what you were doing, but you don't have to own up to it. So you always have that layer of defense, that layer of deception pointing at the sky, pointing at the sky. It was a very, very Mr. Trump move that this guy was doing years before, years before. Well, I guess Mr. Trump was around back then, but I don't know if he was as adept. He probably was adept at pointing at the sky because I'm sure that was all part of his like carny real estate deals and all that. But um, in any case, just doing idiotic stuff like that, but nothing that involved uh, like physical manipulation of objects. No, no, no vandalism, no theft, just kind of like obnoxious performance art. Until one fateful day, as I mentioned um, other individuals would um, join and leave and come back. Uh, the ride home group. Um, there was the three prime members, and then we would pile in a few extra people here and there at different times. And so on one fateful day, another friend of ours, who we will call J2, um, J2 got a ride home from school with us. And now J2 was and is a mutant. J2 was kind of a very early, not that mutantism is something new, but he was prefiguring the 21st century style of mutantism, even in the latter days of the 20th century. He um, is the type of mutant that would have participated in the Occupy tent city that I mentioned earlier. The last I heard of him, he was jumping trains, trying to react to some hobo cosplay fantasy from the Depression era. Um, but, you know, here in the 2010s or whatever. Um, but uh, very, very uh, uh, retrograde individual, anti-everything, but anti-everything from, from, a, from a left perspective versus a, a right perspective. Um, so... We were driving around making fun of the houses as we would always do. And one of the houses in particular that had been catching our eye that we just thought was so funny was this ostentatious home that had its own playground. And I want to paint a picture for some of the listeners out there because I know real estate is different in different parts of the country. Um, For instance, I went to a family reunion on um, my wife's side in Minnesota a few years back and the houses that were not, you know, like, I mean, people have plenty of money, but they were, it's not that these were like super wildly affluent houses, but the yards were these sprawling, huge affairs, just really big plots of land. That is just not how, how it is here in California with high land values and uh, population density and all that. So it, it's not common 
to see a home in a hillside development that has this full-blown, like, professional... I don't mean they had like a preschool swing set out in front. It was like the kind of playground that would be at like a high school or like a big park or something, but it was right there, right there in the yard. So J2 thought it was hilarious to jump out of the car, start swinging on the swings and sliding on the slide in the playground. And uh, we took pictures of him doing it. Um, I thought this was very funny. And at this point, this still, I mean, I'm sure if someone had witnessed this, we could have gotten in trouble for messing around with someone else's uh, playground equipment in their yard. But it's still, we didn't, the, the, the equipment was not damaged. We weren't, weren't doing anything. We weren't defacing it. We were simply using it, which I understand is a crime in of itself. But, it, you know, it hadn't gotten, hadn't gotten quite to that next level yet. Until it did. And now I can't remember, sadly, which house the frog with the flute that we're about to discuss was associated with. I can't remember if it belonged to the home with the playground or not. But in driving around, we passed a house somewhere in that area that had a large statue in the front yard of a frog playing a flute. Now, interestingly enough, I didn't understand this at the time, but I've come to find in years since... um, since the idea of a frog playing a flute became part of my uh, imaginal landscape, that it is this is actually a thing. Like, you can find old postcards with a frog playing a flute. You can find, apparently, statues of a frog playing a flute. And I'm not clear what the significance is of a frog playing a flute. But we found this to be so hilarious and so absurd that we kidnapped the frog with the flute. And then I think that uh, J2 took the frog with the flute to the playground and like went on the slide with it, went on the swings with it, and we took more pictures of that. Now, probably, I don't know if fate would have been different if we had left the frog with the flute where we found it after we used it, but we kept the frog with the flute. And I can't remember how much of this is reality and how much of this is what we said we were going to do, but I, I seem to recall... We took the frog with the flute captive, and we might have even taken Polaroid pictures of the frog with the flute as a captive and left them in the driveway of the house where we found the frog with the flute. In any case, the theft of the frog with the flute opened the floodgates. Opened the floodgates for something that quickly grew out of control. I won't say that we took a vast number of absurd statues and lawn ornaments, but we took a few, or we'd rearrange them. We'd take one from one yard and switch it with one in the other. Um, We found it to be quite amusing to run over garbage cans. Not really run them over. Like they, they were probably damaging the Buick more than we would damage them, but we'd be driving down a hill and then you'd hit the empty garbage can that some of the left off in the curb and it'd go kind of like off to the side and rolling down a little bit further down the hill. Um, not full garbage cans, so not creating some god-awful mess. We were, we were not monsters. We were animals, not monsters. And again, I want to say I'm not condoning any of this behavior and, and we will, as this story unfolds, process maybe why this behavior was taking place. Um, keep in mind, these are 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, uh, non-fully formed brains uh, acting in very odd ways. 
So again, I'm not romanticizing this behavior. I'm not condoning this behavior. I'm not recommending this behavior. And as you will soon find out, this behavior um, led us to, and not a bad end per se, but it wasn't like there weren't consequences for these actions. I am actually going to stop here. And we are going to resume next week as I continue this tale of this strange organic crime spree that grew out of driving home in a silver Buick. And I'll tell you what else happened and uh, what happened to us. But for now, it's me. It's me. It's Mr. Sensational Gino V. Signing off.